0: Section eighteen of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of Saint John, Volume One by J. C. Ryle. Chapter four, verses thirty-one to forty-two, Christ's seal to do good, encouragement to those who labor for Christ, men led to Christ in various ways. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter four, verses thirty-one to forty-two in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying master eat but he said unto them i have meat to eat that ye know not of therefore said the disciples one to another hath any man brought him aught to eat jesus saith unto them my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work say ye not there are yet four months and then cometh harvest behold i say unto you Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth, and he that reapeth, may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. They besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. We have for one thing in these verses an instructive pattern of zeal for the good of others we read that our lord jesus christ declares my meat is to do the will of him which sent me and to finish his work to do good was not merely duty and pleasure to him he counted it as his food meat and drink job one of the holiest old testament saints could say that he esteemed god's word more than his necessary food job chapter 23 verse 15 the great head of the new testament church went even further he could say the same of god's work do we do any work for god do we try however feebly to set forward his cause on earth to check that which is evil to promote that which is good if we do let us never be ashamed of doing it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength whatsoever our hand finds to do for the souls of others let us do it with our might ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 the world may mock and sneer and call us enthusiasts the world can admire zeal in any service but that of god and can praise enthusiasm on any subject but that of religion let us work on unmoved whatever men may say and think we are walking in the steps of our lord jesus christ let us besides this take comfort in the thought that jesus christ never changes he that sat by the well of Samaria and found it meat and drink to do good to an ignorant soul is always in one mind. High in heaven at God's right hand, he still delights to save sinners, and still approves zeal and labor in the cause of God. The work of the missionary and the evangelist may be despised and ridiculed in many quarters, but while man is mocking, Christ is well pleased. Thanks be to God, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. We have, for another thing in these verses, strong encouragement held out to those who labour to do good to souls. We read that our Lord described the world as a field white for the harvest, and then said to His disciples, He that reapeth, receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. Work for the souls of men is undoubtedly attended by great discouragements. The heart of natural man is very hard and unbelieving. The blindness of most men to their own lost condition and peril of ruin is something past description. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans chapter eight verse seven. No one can have any just idea of the desperate hardness of men and women until he has tried to do good. No one can have any conception of the small number of those who repent and believe until he has personally endeavoured to save some. First Corinthians chapter nine verse twenty two. To suppose that everybody will become a true Christian who is told about Christ and entreated to believe is mere childish ignorance. Few there be that find the narrow way. The laborer for Christ will find the vast majority of those among whom he labors unbelieving and impenitent in spite of all that he can do. The many will not turn to Christ. These are discouraging facts, but they are facts, and facts that ought to be known. The true antidote against despondency in God's work is an abiding recollection of such promises as that before us. There are wages laid up for faithful reapers. They shall receive a reward at the last day, far exceeding anything they have done for Christ, a reward proportioned not to their success, but to the quantity of their work. They are gathering fruit, which shall endure when this world has passed away, fruit in some souls saved. If many will not believe and fruit in evidences of their own faithfulness to be brought out before assembled worlds do our hands ever hang down and our knees wax faint do we feel disposed to say my labor is in vain and my words without profit let us lean back at such seasons on this glorious promise there are wages yet to be paid there is fruit yet to be exhibited we are a sweet savour of christ both in them that are saved and in them that perish second corinthians chapter two verse fifteen let us work on he that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him some one hundred and twenty six verse six one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world we have, lastly, in these verses, a most teaching instance of the variety of ways by which men are led to believe Christ. We read that many of the Samaritans believed on Christ for the saying of the woman. But this is not all. We read again, many more believed because of Christ's own word. In short, some were converted through the means of the woman's testimony, and some were converted by hearing Christ himself. The words of St. Paul should never be forgotten. There are diversities of operations but it is the same god which worketh all in all first corinthians chapter twelve verse six the way in which the spirit leads all god's people is always one and the same but the paths by which they are severally brought into that road are often widely different there are some in whom the work of conversion is sudden and instantaneous there are others in whom it goes on slowly quietly and by imperceptible degrees some have their hearts gently opened, like Lydia. Others are aroused by violent alarm, like the jailer at Philippi. All are finally brought to repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and holiness of conversation. But all do not begin with the same experience. The weapon which carries conviction to one believer's soul is not the one which first pierces another. The arrows of the Holy Ghost are all drawn from the same quiver but He uses sometimes one and sometimes another, according to His sovereign will. Are we converted ourselves? This is the one point to which our attention ought to be directed. Our experience may not tally with that of other believers, but that is not the question. Do we feel sin, hate it, and flee from it? Do we love Christ and rest solely on Him for salvation? Are we bringing forth fruits of the Spirit in righteousness and true holiness, IF THESE THINGS ARE SO, WE MAY THANK GOD AND TAKE COURAGE. NOTES JOHN CHAPTER 4 VERSES 31-42 to 42, VERSE 31 IN THE MEANWHILE This expression means, during that time when the Samaritans were coming out of the city to the well, between the time when the woman went her way and the time when her fellow countrymen, aroused by her testimony, appeared at the well, it is highly probable that they were already in sight. Prayed the greek word so rendered is remarkable it is frequently used to convey the idea of asking or making inquiry it is a curious fact that it is not used in describing any person's address to god in prayer except in the case of our lord jesus christ john chapter fourteen verse sixteen chapter sixteen verse twenty six chapter seventeen verses nine fifteen and twenty there is one remarkable instance where it seems to be used in describing a believer's prayer First John chapter five verse sixteen, but this instance stands so entirely alone that it is probable the meaning is not pray but make curious inquiry master eat the difference between our lord and his disciples appears here in a striking manner their weak minds were preoccupied with the idea of food and bodily sustenance his heart was filled with the great object of his ministry doing good to souls it is a striking illustration of a difference that may frequently be seen between a believer of great grace and a believer of little grace. The latter, with the best possible intentions, will often attach an importance to bodily and temporal things, with which the strong believer will feel no sympathy. Verse 32. I have meat, etc. The meaning of our Lord's words in this verse must evidently be figurative. He had soul nourishment and soul sustenance, of which his disciples were ignorant. He found such refreshment in doing good to ignorant souls, that for the time present he did not feel bodily hunger. There is no necessity for supposing that our Lord referred to any miraculous supply of his bodily wants in this place. His words appear to me only to indicate that he found such delight and comfort in doing good to souls, that it was as good as meat and drink to him many of his holiest servants in every age i believe could testify much the same the joy and happiness of spiritual success has for the time lifted them above all bodily wants and supplied the place of material meat and drink i see no reason why this may not have been the case with our lord he had a body in all respects constituted like our own the idea of some writers that these words show that our lord's thirst was only stimulated and pretended seems to me utterly unworthy of notice. The application of the words which every believer ought to endeavor to make to himself is familiar to every well-instructed Christian. He has supplies of spiritual nourishment and support, which are hidden and unknown to the world. These supplies he ought to use at all times, and specially in times of sorrow and trial. Verse 33. Therefore said, one to another, etc., these words seem to have been spoken privately or whispered one to another by the disciples. Their inability to put any but a carnal sense on their master's words has already been remarked. In slowness to see a spiritual sense in his language, they do not appear at all unlike Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. What wonder is it, says Augustine, if the woman could not understand our Lord speaking about living water, when the disciples could not understand him speaking about meat? The original Greek of the expression— hath any man brought him aught to eat, is remarkable. There is a negative left out in our translation. It seems to show that the question of the woman at verse 29 would have been better rendered, Is this the Christ? Can this be the Christ? Verse 34. Jesus saith, etc., the leading idea of this verse is that doing God's will and finishing God's work was so, so refreshing and pleasant to our Lord that He found it equivalent to meat and drink. The Greek expression rendered to do and to finish" would have been more literally rendered that I should do and that I should finish but there can be little doubt as Weiner remarks that the language is intended to have an infinitive sense, precisely the same construction is employed in another remarkable place john chapter seventeen verse three it seems matter of regret that our translators did not render that verse as they have rendered the verse before us it should have been this is life eternal to know thee etc the will of god which it was christ's meat to do must mean god's will that salvation by faith in a saviour should be proclaimed and a door of mercy set wide open to the chief of sinners it is my meat says our lord to do that will, and to proclaim to every one with whom I speak, that whosoever believeth on the Son shall not perish. The view that it simply means, my meat is to obey God's commandments and do what He has told me to do, appears to me to fall short of the full meaning of the expression. The leading idea seems to me to be specially God's will about proclaiming salvation by Christ. Compare John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. The work of God, which it was Christ's meat to finish, must mean that work of complete fulfillment of a Saviour's office, which Christ came on earth to perform, and that obedience to God's law, which He came to render. It is my meat, says our Lord, to be daily doing that great work which I came into the world to do for man's soul, to be daily preaching peace and daily fulfilling all righteousness. Compare John chapter 17, verse 4. The utter unlikeness between christ and all ministers of the gospel who perform their duties in a mere perfunctory way and care more for the world and its pleasures or gains than for saving souls is strikingly brought out in this and the preceding verse how many professing teachers of religion know nothing whatever of the spirit and habits of mind which our lord here displays it can never be said of hunting shooting ball going card playing farming clergymen that it is their meat and drink to do god's will and finish his work with what face will they meet christ in the day of judgment cyril says on this verse we learn from hence how great is the love of god towards men he calls the conversion of lost people his meat verse thirty five say ye not etc this saying is interpreted in two different ways some think as origen Rupertus, Brentius, Beza, Jensenius, Cyril, Lightfoot, Lampa, Sucer, and many others, that our Lord really meant that there were four literal months to harvest, at the time when he spoke, and that as the harvest began about May, he spoke in February. The sense would then be, ye say at this time of the year, that it will be harvest in four months, but I tell you there is a spiritual harvest already before you, if you will only lift up your eyes and see it. Others think, as did you, Mondonatus, Maldonatus, Colovius, Whitby, Shotkin, Pierce, Titman, Steer, Alford, Barnes, and Thulock, that our Lord only meant that it was a proverbial saying among the Jews, four months between seed-time and harvest, and that he did not mean the words to be literally taken. The sense would then be, Ye have a common saying that it is four months from seed-time to harvest, but I tell you that in spiritual works the harvest ripens far more quickly, behold those samaritans coming out already to hear the word the very day that seed has been sown among them the fields are already white for harvest either of the above views makes good sense and good divinity yet on the whole i prefer the second view viz that our lord quoted a proverb to suppose that he really meant that there were literally four months to pass away before harvest appears to me to involve serious chronological difficulties it necessitates the assumption that at least three-quarters of a year had passed away since the passover when our lord purified the temple john chapter two verse twenty three no doubt this possibly may have been the case but it does not appear to me probable in addition we must remember that our lord on another occasion referred to a proverbial saying about the weather beginning as much as he does here ye say matthew chapter sixteen verse three moreover in this very passage he quotes a proverb about one sowing and another reaping within two verses the expression therefore say ye not seems to me to point to a proverbial saying much more than to a fact the antithesis to it is the i say which immediately follows calvin says by this expression do you not say christ intended indirectly to point out how much more attentive the minds of men are to earthly than to heavenly things for they burn with so intense a desire of harvest that they carefully reckon up months and days while it is astonishing how drowsy and indolent they are in gathering the heavenly wheat. Cornelius Alipede conjectures that the disciples had been talking to one another about the prospects of harvest as they came to the well, and that our Lord, knowing the conversation, referred to it by the words, Do you not say? Lift up, eyes, look, fields, white, harvest. There can be little doubt that this saying must be interpreted figuratively. The sense is, there is a harvest of souls before you ready to be gathered in. The same figure is used elsewhere, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Luke chapter 10, verse 32. Some think, as Chrysostom, that when our Lord said, Behold, lift up your eyes, look, he spoke with a special reference to the crowd of Samaritans whom he saw coming from the city to the well. If this be so, it is hard to suppose that he first began conversation with the woman at six o'clock in the evening. Others think that our lord spoke these words with reference to the whole world, especially the jewish nation, at the time of his ministry. They were so ready and prepared for the preaching of the gospel that they were like a field white for harvest. The expression lift up your eyes is used elsewhere in scripture when mental attention is being called to something remarkable. See Isaiah chapter forty nine verse eighteen, chapter sixty verse four, Genesis chapter thirteen verses fourteen and fifteen. I am disposed to think that both views are correct. Our Lord wished His disciples to notice that both at Samaria and elsewhere the minds of men were everywhere ready to receive the message of the gospel in an unusual degree. Let them mark how willing the multitude was everywhere to listen to the truth. Let them know that everywhere, as in the apparent hopeless fields of Samaria, they would find a harvest of souls ready to be reaped, if only they would be reapers. Chrysostom, on this verse, remarks, Christ leads His disciples, as His custom is, from low things to high. Fields and harvests here express the great number of souls which are ready to receive the word. The eyes are both spiritual and bodily ones, for they saw a great multitude of Samaritans now approaching. This expectant crowd He calls, very suitably, white fields. For as the corn, when it grows white, is ready for harvest, so were those ready for salvation. But why does He not say all this in direct language? because by making use of objects around them, he gave great vividness and power to his words, and also caused his discourse to be more pleasant and sink deeper into their memories. Verse 36. He that reapeth, etc. This verse seems to me to show that our Lord is speaking generally of the field of this world, and of the whole work which his apostles would have to do in it, not only in Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. The verse is a general promise for encouragement of all laborers of Christ. The full meaning of it can hardly be brought out without a paraphrase. The reaper of the spiritual harvest has a far more honorable and satisfactory office than the reaper of the natural harvest. He receives wages and gathers fruit not for this life only, but for the life to come. The wages that he receives are eternal wages, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. First Peter chapter five verse four. The fruit that he gathers is eternal fruit, souls plucked from destruction and saved for evermore. See Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, John, chapter 15, verse 16, and First Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 17. Burkitt, and several other writers, call attention to the fact that the harvestman's wages are much more than the wages of any other laborer, and hence draw the conclusion that no Christian will receive so glorious a reward as the man who labors to win souls to Christ that both he soweth, reapeth, rejoice together. These words appear to me to refer to the common joy there will be in heaven among all who have labored for Christ when the whole harvest of saved souls is finally gathered in. The Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist, who sowed, will all rejoice together with the apostles who reaped. The results of the spiritual harvest are not like those of the natural harvest, temporal, but eternal, so that a day will come when all who have labored for it in any way either by sowing or reaping will sit down and rejoice together to all eternity here in this world the sower sometimes does not live to see the fruit of his labor and the reaper who gathers in the harvest rejoices alone but work done in the spiritual harvest is eternal work and consequently both sowers and reapers are sure at last to rejoice together and to see the fruit of their toil let it be noted that in heaven there will at the last be no jealousy or envy among Christ's laborers. Some will have been sowers and some will have been reapers, but all will have done that part of the work allotted to them, and will finally rejoice together. Envious feelings will be absorbed in common joy. Let it be noted that in doing work for Christ and laboring for souls, there are sowers as well as reapers. The work of the reaper makes far more show than the work of the sower. Yet it is perfectly clear that if there was no sowing, there would be no reaping. It is of great importance to remember this. The church is often disposed to give an excessive honor to Christ's reapers, and to overlook the labors of Christ's sowers. Verse 37. Herein, that saying true, etc., etc. Our Lord here quotes a proverbial saying which appears to me to confirm the view I have already maintained, that the expression of the thirty-fifth verse, say ye not, there are yet four months, etc., refers to a proverb. The phrase herein means literally, in this, and seems to me to refer to the verse which immediately follows. That common saying, one soweth and another reapeth, is made good in this way, is fulfilled by this circumstance, is verified in the following manner, viz., I send you to reap, etc. The meaning of the proverb is plain, it is a common saying among men that it often falls to one to sow the field, and to another to reap it. The sower and the reaper are not always the same person. The frequent use of proverbial sayings in the New Testament deserves notice. It shows the value of proverbs, and the importance of teaching them to children and young people. A pointed proverb is often remembered when a long moral lesson is forgotten. Verse 38 I sent you to reap, etc., our lord here states the manner in which the proverbial saying of the preceding verse is true he tells the apostles that they were sent to reap a spiritual harvest on which they had bestowed no labor other men had labored viz the prophets of the old testament and john the baptist they had broken up the ground they had sowed the seed the result of their labor was that the minds of men in the apostles times were prepared to expect the messiah and the apostles had only to go forth and proclaim the glad tidings that messiah was come Pierce maintains the strange notion that our Lord in this verse only means, I send you away into the city to buy meat. While you were absent I sowed spiritual seed in the heart of a Samaritan woman. She has now gone to call others. These and many more will be the harvest which you will reap, without having bestowed any labor on it. This interpretation seems to me quite untenable. The past tense in this verse, I have sent, is used, as a grammarian would say, proleptically, it means, I do send you. Such a use of the past tense is common in Scripture, and especially when God speaks of a thing about to be done. With God there is no uncertainty. When He undertakes a thing, it may be regarded as done and finished, because in His counsels it is certain to be finished. Our Lord's meaning is, I send you throughout Samaria, Galilee, and Judea, to reap the fruit of the labors of the prophets and John the Baptist. They have sowed, and you now have only to reap some think as steer and alford that when our lord said other men have laboured he referred rather to himself than to the prophets i am unable to see this it appears to me a forced and unnatural interpretation i hold decidedly with chrysostom cyril theophylact calvin zwingle Melancthon, brentius lampe and poole that it applies principally to the law and prophets if the prophets were not the sowers saith augustine whence had that saying come to the woman i know that messiah cometh Origen says do not moses and elias the sowers rejoice with the reapers peter james and john when they saw the glory of the son of god at the transfiguration theophylact sees in this verse a strong argument against the heretical view of Marconianites, Manichees and others that the new testament is contrary to the old here the prophets and apostles are spoken of together as laborers under one common master in one common field the idea propounded by Bucer that our lord alludes here to heathen philosophers as well as the prophets seems to me unwarrantable and unsafe many samaritans believed about the exact nature of the belief mentioned here and in the forty first verse we have no materials for forming an opinion whether it was only an intellectual belief that christ was the messiah or whether it was that true faith of the heart which justifies a sinner before God, we are left to conjecture. The more probable opinion appears to be that it was true faith, though very weak and unintelligent, like that of the apostles themselves. It is a strong confirmation of this view that when Philip, after the day of Pentecost, went down to Samaria and preached Christ, his preaching was received with joy, and many were baptized, both men and women. Acts chapter 8 verses 5 to 12. THE GOSPEL WAS RECEIVED WITHOUT PREJUDICE, AND EMBRACED at ONCE AS AN ACKNOWLEDGED TRUTH. FOR, SAYING, WOMAN, TESTIFIED, ETC. THESE WORDS SHOW THE IMPORTANCE OF MERELY HUMAN TESTIMONY TO CHRIST'S GOSPEL. THE WORD OF ONE WEAK WOMAN WAS MADE THE INSTRUMENTAL MEANS OF BELIEF TO MANY SOULS. THERE WAS NOTHING REMARKABLE IN THE WOMAN'S WORD. IT CONTAINED NO ELABORATE REASONING AND NO STRIKING ELOQUENCE. IT WAS ONLY A HEARTY, EARNEST TESTIMONY OF A BELIEVING HEART yet God was pleased to use it in the conversion of souls. We must never despise the use of means. If the woman had not spoken, the Samaritans would not have been converted. Above all, we must never despise means because of their apparent weakness, feebleness, and inaptness to do good. God can make the weakest instruments powerful to pull down the strongholds of sin and Satan, just as he made David's sling and stone prevail over Goliath. Theophylact points out that the Samaritan woman's past wicked life was well known to her fellow citizens, and that their attention must have been aroused by her publicly proclaiming that she had found one who knew her former life, although a stranger. They rightly concluded that he must be no common person. Melanchthon remarks that the belief which resulted from the testimony of a woman in this case is a clear proof that it is not absolutely necessary to have regular ministerial orders in order to do good to souls and that episcopal orders are not absolutely needful in order to give effect to the word when spoken. Verse 40 So when Samaritans came, besought, tarry, etc. The desire of the Samaritans for instruction is shown in this verse, and the willingness of Christ to assist inquirers is strikingly exhibited. He waits to be entreated. If we have him not abiding with us, it is because we do not ask him the two disciples journeying to emmaus would have missed a great privilege if they had not said abide with us luke chapter twenty four verse twenty nine Ferris on this verse remarks the wide difference between the samaritans and the Gergesenes. the Gergesenes prayed our lord to depart from them the samaritans to tarry with them matthew chapter eight verse thirty four he abode two days we can only suppose that these two days were spent in teaching and preaching the gospel one would like to know all that was thought and said in those two days but it is an instance of the occasional silences of scripture which every attentive bible reader must have noticed the first thirty years of our lord's life at nazareth the way in which st paul spent his time in arabia and his employment during his two years imprisonment in caesarea are similar silences galatians chapter 1 verse 17 acts chapter 24 verse 27 it is an interesting fact which has been observed by some writers that at this very day, Nablus and his neighborhood occupying the site of Samaria and Sychar are in a more flourishing and prosperous condition than almost any place in Palestine, while Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, which rejected Christ, have almost entirely passed away. Samaria, which believed and received him, flourishes still. Verse 41. Many more believed, own word. This verse shows the sovereignty of God in saving souls one is called in one way and another in another. Some Samaritans believed when they heard the woman testify. Others did not believe till they heard Christ himself. We must be careful that we do not bind down the Holy Ghost to one mode of operation. The experience of saved souls often differs widely. If people are brought to repentance and faith in Christ, we must not be stumbled because they are not all brought in the same way. Olshausen remarks on this verse, here is a rare instance in which the ministry of the Lord produced an awakening on a large scale. Ordinarily we find that a few individuals only were aroused by Him, and that these, like grains of seed, scattered here and there, became the germs of a new and higher order of things among the people at large. Verse 42. Now we believe, not thy saying. The Greek words so rendered would be translated more literally, not any longer because of thy saying do we believe. Calvin thinks that the Greek word here rendered saying means literally talk or talkativeness, and that the Samaritans appear to boast that they now have a stronger foundation than a woman's tongue. In the only other three places where it is used, it is translated speech Matthew chapter twenty six, verse seventy three, Mark chapter fourteen, verse seventy, John chapter eight, verse forty three. This is indeed christ saviour world the greek words so rendered would be translated more literally this is the saviour of the world the christ the singular fullness of the confession made by these samaritans deserves special notice a more full declaration of our lord's office as saviour of the world is nowhere to be found in the gospels whether the samaritans clearly understood what they meant when they spoke of our lord as the saviour may be reasonably doubted but that they saw with peculiar clearness a truth which the jews were specially backward in seeing that he had come to be a redeemer for all mankind and not for the jews only seems evident from the expression the world that such a testimony should have been borne to christ by a mixed race of semi-heathen origin like the samaritans and not by the jews is a remarkable instance of the grace of god the inference drawn by Calvin from this verse, that within two days the sense of the gospel was more plainly taught by Christ at Samaria than he had hitherto taught it at Jerusalem, seems both unwarrantable and needless. Ought we not, rather, to fix our eyes on the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans? Christ's teaching was the same, but the hearts of his hearers were widely different. The Jews were hardened. The Samaritans believed. Chimnitius, on this verse, thinks that an emphasis is meant to be laid on the Greek word rendered indeed. Literally, it is truly. He thinks it was used of our Lord in contradistinction to the false Christs and messiahs who had appeared before him, as well as to the typical messiahs and saviors, such as the judges. In leaving this passage, we may well wonder that so many Samaritans should at once have believed on our Lord when so few Jews ever believed. Our wonder may well be increased when we consider that our Lord worked no miracle on this occasion, and that the word was the only instrument used to open the Samaritan's hearts. We see, for one thing, the entire sovereignty of the grace of God. The last are often first and the first last. The most ignorant and unenlightened believe and are saved, while the most learned and enlightened continue unbelieving and are lost. We see, for another thing, that it is not miracles and privileges, but grace which converts souls. The Jews saw scores of mighty works worked by our Lord, and heard Him preach for weeks and months, and yet with a few rare exceptions remained impenitent and hardened. The Samaritans saw no miracles worked at all, and only had our Lord among them for two days, and yet many of them believed. If ever there was clear proof that the grace of the Holy Spirit is the chief thing needed in order to procure the conversion of souls, we have it in the verses we are now leaving. The allegorical and typical meanings which some writers assign to the Samaritan woman and her history, as related in this chapter, are hardly worth recounting. Some regard the woman as a type of the Jewish synagogue, slavishly bound to the five books of the law, and drawn finally to Christ to drink the living water of the gospel. Some regard the woman as a type of the Gentile nations, for five thousand years committing fornication with heathen idols, and at length purged by Christ, and casting away their empty water-pots in obedience to Christianity. Some go even further and regard the woman as a prophetical type of things yet to come. They consider her as a type of the Greek church which is yet to be brought into the true faith of Christ. These views appear to me at best only fanciful speculations, and more likely to do harm than good, by drawing men away from the plain practical lessons which the passage contains. End of section 18